Shalom, shalom, wonderful friends. That melody is from Achenu Kobet Israel. that we are brothers and sisters um, connected across the globe, across uh, across our Zoom screens, uh, that we are connected through love and compassion uh, together, um, and that those bonds can never be broken wherever we are. Um, so feeling that solidarity and that togetherness today with you all, and... Um, Looking forward to jumping in to Camus with you today, Albert Camus. So I'm sure y'all know a little bit about him, maybe even more than me. So uh, yeah, and I see Anatolia is uh, laughing about that. Uh, by the way, we were very worried about who that was joining the Zoom today. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but we're glad you're, glad you're here. Anyways, here's a poll question for you. On life, life is generally reasonable and existence has an order. Life is absurd and existence is chaos. <laughs> so what do you think, friends? Is, is life generally reasonable and existence has some kind of order to it? Or is life kind of absurd and um, existence is chaos? And you might have a different answer tomorrow than you have today, but you could just say what you feel like saying today. Um, give you a few seconds to think about that because it's not um, always easy to answer. Okay, 33% say life is pretty reasonable and existence has an order. 67% life is absurd and existence is chaos. All right, so we're going to uh, dive into that a little bit today with a thinker who um, could have very well still been alive today. Well, no, actually no, but he died at, um, at age 46, uh, but he was born in 1913, so he wouldn't be alive. I mean, I guess he could be. But dying at 46 is pretty tragic. And um, although all death is, is tragic and absurd. Um, so how are we supposed to accept the existence of an unjust world? How do we accept an unjust world? How are we supposed to say that life is good in a world full of war and poverty and disease? What's the purpose of life if we're all just going to die anyways? Um, Albert Camus was born in French Algeria. His father was killed in World War I, and he was consequently raised by his mother in extreme poverty. Camus suffered from tuberculosis, a disease that recurred throughout his life and significantly impacted his thought. Camus' most important work, is what one might say, is a novel called The Plague, which is about living in the face of a cruel and absurd world. Camus would move to France and become involved with the French Communist Party. He's a commie. During World War II, he joined the French resistance to the Nazi occupation. Oh. During this war, in his 1942 work, The Stranger, Camus wrote about a fictional settler in Algeria 
who kills an Arab man. Camus is an existentialist. Much of his writing focuses on a struggle that in our personal consciousness, we feel that life is meaningful, yet when we zoom out from our personal consciousness, we get the sense that the universe is vast and we are but an in, infinitesimally small part of such a massive universe. How then can life have meaning? Given our smallness, our irrelevance, you might say, how can we handle this contradiction? Camus believed that rather than turn away from it, we must truly lean into and embrace the meaninglessness of human existence. While that might sound depressing to some, for Camus, it is what enables us to live well. Camus powerfully illustrates this idea through the Greek myth of Sisyphus, the Greek myth of Sisyphus, a character condemned by the gods, so to speak, to eternally roll a boulder up a hill, only for it to keep falling back down. We're all familiar with the story from grade school. Camus saw this as, a, as paradigmatic of human existence with all the seemingly meaningless things we feel obligated to do. Even the parts of life that are most meaningful to us, such as following a dream or raising a family potentially, are ultimately meaningless from the perspective of the universe. Why then should we live? What reason do we have to keep on persevering, to keep pushing that rock up the hill knowing it will just come back down? According to Camus, one cannot escape the absurdity of human existence. Like Sisyphus, we try to impose meaning on the world, but it is often like pushing a boulder up a hill. Though we may be able to move it some distance, eventually our efforts will fail and the boulder will roll back down again. In the face of such absurdity, Camus argues that human beings are unique in that we can make meaning out of what is objectively meaningless. He can we can choose to embrace the absurdity of life and in doing so discover our freedom to rebel against it. In the end, we may fail, but we will do so as free beings. Camus' notion of the absurd might not resonate for all of us at all times. But at times of personal crisis, for example, we may feel it is necessary to question everything. It's undeniably valuable to affirm our meaning-making amidst the absurdity of life. Some might dismiss any inter internally driven sense of meaning, failing to see its cosmic relevance. But in fact, meaning that comes from within us can at times be more meaningful as it's imposed not from an outside source, but from our deepest intuitions. To be sure, Camus doesn't argue that we can just impose our meaning on the world because there's no objective meaning. The world constantly resists those efforts. Hence, the boulder always rolls back down again. However, Camus is saying that even though we know the boulder will roll back down, that life is meaningless, we can choose freely to keep pushing it up. We can act heroically in the face of the absurd. And when we do, we are perhaps most human. How does this compare with how Judaism addresses the feeling that life is ultimately meaningless? For example, how do we deal with the despair of being unable to fully repair a world whose injustice seems absurd? First, we can look to our father, Abraham. When God says that Stom and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, would be destroyed, Abraham famously protested, saying, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent 
as well as the guilty, so that innocent and guilty fare alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Even though Abraham's protest ultimately did not save those people, his example shows us that there's nothing wrong with identifying absurdity when we see it. More importantly, he's willing to do, to do so to God directly. When we recognize the contradictions of our existence, such as our mortality, the shortness of life, and just how minuscule, minuscule the amount we can achieve seems to be, it's easy to want to give up. Yet Judaism fights against this by instilling an awareness of time and a sense of urgency. What, what we do matters even if we can't always see the long-term consequences of our actions. We read a slightly anxious statement to this effect in Pirkei Avot. Rabbi Tarfon said, The day is short, and the work is plentiful, and the laborers are indolent, and the reward is great, and the master of the house is insistent. Despite the fact that we're limited in our ability to bring about justice, and even in our ability to know what justice is, perhaps, we learn from the tradition and the continuation of Rabbi Tarfon's statement. Good to connect that last one with this one, because the, the first one is not famous, and this one is famous. It's not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. In, in a sense, Rabbi Tarfon acknowledges the absurdities of human existence. Despite our best efforts, it's rarely the case that a human life ends with the world's problems being fixed. Yet that does not diminish our responsibility in trying to address them. In the temporal, we have the chance to connect to things that are eternal, even if they do not yet achieve perfection. This is put most poetically in the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. First, the teacher reiterates the near-despairing thesis of the book. Before the silver cord snaps and the golden bowl crashes, the jar is shattered at the spring, and the, judge, and the jug is smashed at the cistern, and the dust returns to the ground as it was, and the life breath returns to God who bestowed it. Utter futility, says Kohelet. All is futile. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is so radical, what we call in Hebrew Kohelet, that the rabbis tried to censor it. The rabbis tried to keep the book of Kohelet out of Tanakh because one of the messages there is that everything is futile. Camus would have liked this book. Maybe he did like it. Um, but the futility of all existence is something he continues to emphasize. Of course, he's got a bigger takeaway in the end. Um, but this book is attributed to Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon one of his three books, um, alongside Song of Songs, Shir HaShirim, and, um, and Mishlei, Proverbs. Um, Proverbs, is, and all three of them couldn't be more different. Song of Songs are, are uh, romantic and uh, uh, love poetry. Um, Mishlei is like fortune cookies. It's like, um, it's like little uh, Proverbs, uh, obviously. And Ecclesiastes is about the futility of life. And there's an argument about the order he wrote these three books. Some say, oh, when you're young, you just write little pieces of moral wisdom. And you get older and you write love poetry. And then you get oldest and then you get cynical. And some say the opposite. C cynics are, is, you know, you can be cynical when you're young. And then maybe you get into love poetry and then you end up with wisdom. So anyways, um, but this notion that all is futile comes from this book of Ecclesiastes. But then the book concludes over here with an answer to all of this futility. The sum of the matter, when all is said and done, is revere God and observe God's commandments. For This applies to all mankind. 
So zooming out on what he's really saying over there is a little bit like Camus, right? Um, everything is futile and absurd. Like who cares what shoes I buy, what clothes I have, what house I live in, like all these little choices that feel so important in my life, right? When you zoom out to humanity, like it means nothing. Like if I'm out of my deathbed, who cares what shoes I wear, I wore yesterday, you know? Who cares what I had for lunch, you know? It's futile, but what really matters is live a good life, right? Do what is right and good in the world. Um, even though you even though you don't know that those little actions matter from a cosmic perspective, right? Bracket the cynicism of the absurdity and do the right next right thing. Another way of looking at it is that when we can view the divine as having created the world specifically in order to have someone to express loving kindness to, our existence is inherently meaningful because we are born out of that need for the divine to connect to us. If this was just to fulfill God's needs, so to speak, something would seem wrong with creating a broken world. But we can learn to see creation as an ultimate act of kindness, as a necessary extension of love, right? That we are partners in healing brokenness. We can also grapple with the absurdity of life in the strain of religious thought that tells us we're nothing, and yet we're also everything. The story is retold by Martin Buber. It was said of Reb Simcha Banim, an 18th century uh, Hasidic Rebbe, that he carried two slips of paper, one in each pocket. One was inscribed with the saying from the Talmud, Bishvili nivraha olam, for my sake the world was created. On the other, he wrote a phrase from our father Abraham in the Torah, I am but dust and ashes. He would take out and read each slip of paper as necessary for the moment. In his own way, Buber is acknowledging the same contradiction noted by Camus. On the one hand, we are nothing but dust and ashes. Nothing we do is permanent. And when compared to, to the most zoomed out divine perspective, our efforts will always fall short. But at the same time, we can see that despite our infinite smallness next to God, we also have the power to be more impactful than we can ever imagine. The Hasidic masters tell us that our mitzvot are effective not only in this realm, but also in healing the heavenly sphere, so to speak. Even if we try to think less mystically, we can imagine the ripple effect of our good deeds in this world and see that by just making one good decision, we can set a chain reaction of healing into motion that we never could have anticipated. I've certainly had that experience. I wonder if you have as well. To conclude, actually, before we conclude, perhaps Leonard Cohen explained it best when he said, you look around and you see a world that can not be made sense of. You can raise your fists or you can say hallelujah. We're, we're, we're used to that other most famous quote around, you know, the, the crack and the light. Um, but I think this gets around a similar point. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You can raise your fist to fight, or you can say hallelujah. Hallelujah doesn't just mean praise. It really means an embracing of purpose, an embracing of meaning, uh, a connection, a relationship, a um, an affirmation of value, right, that is worthy of praise um, in the midst of seeing absurdity. Yes, the world is absurd, but that's not the end of the story. There's still work to be done. Okay, friends, uh, would love to hear from you how you think about Camus, because there's obviously only touched a tiny bit of him, um, and um, how you think of absurdity or experience absurdity of injustice or meaning of life. 
how you think of affirming life, you know, if at all, in the midst of that. And anything else you want to talk about? Hi, how are you? Great, um, how are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, I feel uh, I, I feel non-absurd entirely. <laughs> uh, what what we talk a lot about Jews for justice, justice, and I think you brought it up earlier. What what is justice? Somebody asked me that, and I I really couldn't come up with an answer, but I have certain feelings about justice. Justice to me is advocacy. Mm. Uh, that's that's the closest I could come. And I also think of the song, Here Comes the Sun, by the Beatles in 1969. To me, that is is definitely my anthem. And, mm. and so to me, justice is advocacy, and here comes the sun, but I'm sure it means much more to everybody else. And I'm kind of stuck on what is justice? Great, great. I'm so glad you asked that, Steve, um, because that fits so well with um, this course that we're exploring together. That was one a fundamental question for the Greeks um, of what is justice, because most societies have taken it for granted or people ideologically take for granted what is unjust and what is just. And um, not only has this been a debate among cultures and throughout, throughout all of history, if you just look at America today and the great debates of what is just, literally at odds, I mean, it couldn't be more bigger differences. Um, and so um, on, on, on virtually everything, and of course, there's many different fields of justice. You might talk about distributive justice or economic justice, which means how do the resources we have in society get distributed? Should the wealthy be allowed to keep all of their wealth or most? Should there be, there be a redistribution of wealth? How, how, how centralizes the government and how do they uh, are part of redistribution of wealth? And of course, um, it might seem like Democrats and Republicans are completely at odds given the way the debates look, but actually they're hardly at odds. The, 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 um, it's just to win elections. If you look at federal taxes and how much the Democrats want to charge federal taxes for those in the highest bracket versus how much the Republicans want to want to want to charge, it, it's it's almost it, it's nominal how what, what that difference looks like. We have this whole debate as if oh the, the Republicans make it sound like Democrats want to take all the wealth of like you know make it a commie state you know and or, or even a socialist state and um, and the, and the Democrats make it sound like the Republicans want to give every break, but actually. It's, it's a little bit of a fraud, uh, because if you look at actually what they propose on the ground, it's very it, the, the percentages are so similar that um, that it, it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a conspiracy. But anyways, that's distributive justice. How, how should we distribute and, and, and welfare? Um, then you get the criminal justice and who should be penalized and how should they be penalized and who should be criminalized and, and, and how should they be 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 criminalized? Um, or, uh, you know, or incarcerated. And so criminal justice, of course, is a whole different field of justice from distributive justice or economic justice. Then you have what gets a bad rap these days um, of social justice. Social justice has a lot to do with identity. Um, and, you know, Fox News has, ma has made the phrase social justice make it sound like it's, uh, you know, like the worst thing you could sign off to. Um, but social justice itself, which has been overused to mean a whole bunch of other things, but, you know, has a lot to do with sexual orientation, has to do with race, has to do with identity, largely. 
Then you can talk about just warfare, right? The, the, the justice of how we how we fight, right? Which is to say um, that, well, so let's talk about terrorism for a moment. So terrorism, uh, one of the debates, and I'm sure we represent both sides here, um, has to do with whether a non-state militia should be have the same rights to combat as a state militia, right? So um, now we might say yes, we might say no, that um, you know that a population not represented by a state has the right to arm themselves and defend themselves. Others might say no, only states have that right. But to go further, where we would agree on terrorism, I, I assume we'd all agree, is that one thing that defines acts of terror versus valid forms of resistance from a state is targeting civilians as opposed to um, soldiers. Now, let's talk about Hamas for a moment. So we know Hamas is a terror group for, for, for the very least because of that second category. Hamas targets civilians, not soldiers. I mean, soldiers also, but but and that's part of what a terror group does. But where there may be disagreement is, does the people of Gaza have the right to have an armed militia? Some people would say, no, um, they're not a state. And anything they form as an armed militia is a terrorist group, right? Because it's not a state militia. Others would say, no, every population has the right to an armed defense. Now, that's an interesting debate. But where, we, but where it's clear that Hamas is a terror group is, um, is the fact, of, once again, of who they target. Um, now, one of the other interesting things they do, they're now claiming 24,000 people have been killed, right? There's no outside verification because they won't allow outside verification. They're now claiming 24,000 people have been killed in this war. And they, they refuse to differentiate between soldiers and civilians, right? Whereas every state must differentiate between number of deaths of soldiers versus civilians. They refuse to because they see no difference. They see no difference in the enemy and they see no difference in their own people. That's something I would object to. I mean, I, I, all death is, is tragic, but in my view, um, the death of a civilian is in some ways more tragic than the death of a soldier because war is horrible and war is a reality. But when civilians uh, are caught up in, in soldier warfare, there's something additionally tragic to that. So anyways, distributive economic justice, criminal justice, social justice, the justice of warfare, Sarah threw into the chat, restorative justice, which is important to talk about as well, um, and kind of the healing process that comes with uh, creating a just society. And there's so many other categories we could talk about. Feel free to put some in the chat if you want to. But more interesting than talking about the Western terms for justice is talking about Sedek. Sedek, the Hebrew term for justice, of course, is linked to Sedaka. We normally call Sedaka charity, which is a bad translation because Sedaka comes from justice. We say Anit Sadok, I am right, right? Uh, or Hut Hut Sadok. Or um, he is right. So saying somebody is right in Hebrew, saying he is just. So it has to do with truth as well, in addition to this charitable contribution. And then we also call a righteous person a tzaddik, or if she's a woman, tzedeket, right? A righteous person, which has to do with character, not just a just society. But with the way Levinas talks about justice is it's about there being a third party, Steve. Now here I'm getting to your point. A third party. When, when there's just me and another person, that is an interpersonal relationship, right? When there's a third party, now we're talking about justice, right? Because now we're talking about a group 
and the way the groups interact, the way a society operates is different from how a family operates, is different from how a marriage operates. We don't want to talk about a just marriage. I mean, there, because justice is about the public realm, right? Marriage is in the private realm. Justice doesn't have a place in the private realm, right? There, there are categories of ethics in the private realm. Justice is about the, the realm of society. How do we conduct war? How do we distribute resources? How do we punish those who do crimes? And so we can talk about kindness and what's ethical in the private realm, our communities, our families, our personal relationships. Justice is about how do we then translate the, how do we bring our private ethics into the public realm? And so we talk about like our Jews for justice. What we're talking about there is not be a mensch because that's, that's something. We're not talking about our marriages. We're not talking about our, our, our workplace ethics. We're not talking about our, you know, uh, that scale. We're talking about race, gender, prisons, war. We're talking about, um, about taxation. We're talking about the issues of political debate and, um, and how those play out. And of course, there can be a range of views on those. I don't think justice means, oh, then you sign on to X, Y, and Z. So, Steve, that was a little long-winded, but I would love to hear any <laughs> any reaction you have to that or any response. That's that's kind of why I think, uh, in, in my limited uh, potential here, uh, uh, not absurd potential, but limited potential, that advocacy is my strongest suit. I want to inculcate into somebody else. The strength, the, the idea that they're much more than they might believe, and and to help the, uh, help them grow and attain things that they they might feel out of reach. So that that to me is my input to justice. Great, thank you, Steve. Awesome. Yeah, hi, Gary. Gary Friedlander. Good morning, everyone. Hope everyone is well. Uh, well, yesterday being MLK Day, uh, you know, I went to a couple lectures. Uh, by Andre Ivory, who is, you know, for those who don't know here in Arizona, is uh, uh, education director of one of the synagogues locally. And uh, in one of his lectures, uh, by the way, if you're in Phoenix, you missed two great lectures. <laughs> but, you know, he, he uh, was speak, has spoken about racism and that the actual <clears throat> term of racism, <clears throat> excuse me, was developed, you know, during the slave uh, labor, uh, way back when in the six, 15, 16, 1700s, to develop racial or develop uh, uh, upper lower class to justify justify uh, the people, you know, white white Caucasians from Europe uh, to people of of color, though, and and as a result of that. Uh, you know, we still live with this uh, notion of of people of color being a different race than 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 whites, uh, which I had never heard of, of that before. But it made sense, and I'm not giving him any justice based upon his his, his lecture. Uh, but you know, and, and obviously, if if we don't, if we always think of people as as different races, but it takes away the humanity of what each individual actually is, uh, that we see them as a different race rather than seeing them as ourselves. Uh, so, so, so that, so when you spoke about uh, uh, fighting racism, it, it kind of struck this point in me that uh, why do we keep 
talk about different races. Why don't we just stop using the word uh, and and find another word to make all people being equal? So. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Gary. And yeah, the history of the terms racism and racist are fascinating. I posted one NPR piece over there. Maybe others want to share others in terms of the origins of, of this. Um, and yeah, you remind me also in my list of, of justice, uh, also that, of course, there's racial justice, um, <laughs> you know, um, not to mention immigrant, uh, you know, um, immigrant justice. I mean, there, there's so many different categories. Yeah. And in the category of racial justice and co conversation about racism, uh, yeah, there is this whole conversation around like, how do we do away with race? right? The constructs that put us into these categories. How do we just see each other as human and move away from these labels? And there's those who like that, that pathway, um, that we should stop over-racializing our society um, and, and get to that point. And there's others who reject that. They say, look, our ability to see each other beyond uh, race is impossible and don't whitewash and, you know, don't, um, don't pretend like we can be colorblind. And so we do a great disservice by just saying we can see each other as humans beyond race. Um, and those are interesting debates and conversations to have of like, how do we balance what today maybe seems like an overly racialized world that we see too many things through a prism of race, of race some might say, um, and yet also acknowledging the reality of race and what that means for injustices, what that means for biases, what that means for um, how people engage with each other. And this is a really hard balance. Um, you know, if you, you, you know, you take away the two extremes, like I, I find it difficult to suggest that we can ever live in a world that is colorblind. But I also find it difficult to suggest that everything of existence, as some people I know suggest, should be seen through a racial lens. Um, I think it's a very simplistic view of, of human experience and of the complexities of society. Um, in fact, even those trying to look at the Israeli, you know, Gaza war, you know, solely through a racial lens is such a distorted lens of how to understand the conflict, in my view, although certainly a racial lens is helpful partially in, in any conflict. So, yeah, so thank you for that. And um, and I think we're moving past the point where racist is the worst thing you could be called. I think that was like five years ago or 10 years ago because like that, but that label got so overused, you know, um, and so politicized that um, it's like your career was over if you said something that was deemed by a certain group to be racist and, you know, and you're out. But today, the, you know, the conversation around race is so complex that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, just like we could imagine 10 years ago that somebody with 90 felony charges would win the Iowa caucus, you know, um, it's a it's a new reality. Like it actually does. It actually, those things help you. And by be, being called a racist by certain groups, that helps you among certain groups because, it, it, you know, it means you're, you're, you know, you're transcending wokeness um, and that reality. So we're living in such divided times that um, that just throwing accusations and labels at people actually might hurt the cause more than help it. Anyway, hi, hi Cheryl. Hi. Um, I, I've just been reading a couple of historical fiction books, and they, they actually both are taking place in the 1940s in Europe. And um, how, I, 
I, I mean, there's a there is a def, there's the aristocracy and there's servants and there's a caste system and a class system. And then it all seems to I mean, it seems like that goes back way with, with the, the whole hierarchy of, uh, you know, royalty and all that kind of stuff. And, and that that is so to me, it seems so absurd that some people hold themselves out to be something that they're that they've either been born to and why were they born to it? Uh, I mean, it seems like that that is one step away from what the kind of the beginnings of what we have devolved into now with the you know, racism and well, racism, it definitely has to do something with, uh, you know, skin color and ethnicity and all that. But it, to me, you know, reading these couple of books right now, it seems to all, kind of started way back when, you know, it started way back when where some people regard themselves for whatever reason as being better or privileged or more, um, the, the, people they're owed something because of where they are in this hierarchy of privilege or um, finance or wh whatever. And, you know, just watching the crown over all these years, you know, it's just, to me, it's an absurd society. It's absurd how it, how it, how, but then when I think of it in relation to where we have come and where we have evolved or devolved to, um, the, to me, there, the, it kind of started somewhere way back when it didn't, it, it, it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen in America. It didn't just happen, you know, I mean, we have different reasons for things, but it didn't just happen here. And, the, you know, I've just, I, it just so, ba the, my back-to-back -back books just happened to target in on that. And then Camus coming today uh, in high school, reading Camus was always part of the theatrical approach to um, absurdity. So I, I do appreciate your bringing in the philosophical and the, um, the uh, Jewish connection to it. Thank you. Right. Yes. Um, awesome. Um, thank you, Cheryl. That's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. I, I love that you brought in the caste system and I'm curious to hear how others, you know, grapple with that, you know, um, and the absurdity of the fatalistic mindset that your kind of life and role has been determined. The same thing you could say about gender, you know, around, um, you know, how women's roles, you know, for millennia have been just determined what, what how one will live. I mean, the truth is, I mean, prior to modernity, it was, it was the, it, to some degree, it was the same for men, that like the amount of choice one had in terms of what they would be in the world. Um, but the caste system, I think you're totally right, is particularly absurd. Um, you know, and that, of course, still exists in the world in parts, but in in other ways, um, that system has is is a, 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 a is really a win. How much that's been transcended? Of course, that there's still injustices in place around a fatalistic mindset, but how many of our societies have been able to come out of that caste caste system? So yeah, so Ruth writes over here birthright in Judaism. And that that's an interesting, you know, kind of parallel to think about in terms of like, you know, order of birth and how that's also kind of, you know, determinative uh, traditionally of, you know, who one is and their status in the family um, and their role and, and their inheritance and the like. So um, 
yeah, what does it mean to kind of be born into a world that the way you were born is, um, you know, is so determinative of, of how society will engage with you? So very interesting. Uh, so I, I, I leave that question open to, to others here to engage with on, on this or anything else. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Hi, Blair. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction just for, you know, a few minutes and everything like that. You know, we don't have to pick up on this or anything. But if we're talking about absurdity, though, um, something that I'm thinking about with absurdity, just, you know, this is just me being OK. Um, all right. I, I read. Oh, and by the way, about changing my name and everything like that, though, because there are very nosy stalkers people out there anyway, students. Oops, did I? say that anyway though but um the thing that i'm kind of um thinking about though is that i read Camus like um way 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 like hell it must have been 30 years ago or something like that and so i'm thinking about this though but i remember though um his main character in the stranger is the guy who says i hope the crowd is like jeering at me and like you know when he's about to be executed i hope they're like throwing all this hate at me and everything else like that and one of the questions is well why does he want people to hate him so much well you know to bring some meaning to his death and everything and then um, camus and his like you know sisyphus issue of like well why not commit suicide at this rate okay if it's all like meaningless and everything like that though i mean i i'm pretty sure I can bring up the most extreme existentialist question. If it's like, really, then why not commit suicide? And then he comes to the conclusion of, well, death really isn't more meaningful than life anyway, though. I mean, you're not going to really get more meaningful like, meaning out of like dying. And so I kind of like put all those together. And so I'm kind of looking at this from the perspective of, um, you know, you don't, I minored in French. And so I've had more than enough absurd French writers, you know, to last me a lifetime and everything though. But I just kind of look at it from the perspective of, well, it is absurd though, but really is this absolutely how, I mean, I don't know how depressing is it for people to think, well, sorry, humans are the best we can do, you know, like this, whatever, because the universe isn't going to respond to you or whatever. I don't know. Um, I mean, in a way, I'm kind of just wondering, like, how much, how dependent are we on this idea, like, that, yeah, there has to be something out there, but, like, are we actually really dependent on this, some sort of, like, um, I hate to say it like this, so this is not going to sound pretty, though, but are we addicted to the idea that there is something meaningful about this, and if it's really just an addiction, then what do we do with that? If we like wake up and say, you know what, I'm just addicted to the idea that I'm going to create some sort of meaning out of pushing this stupid rock up this hill, like Sisyphus, like, you know, for all eternity, which by the way, Sisyphus is in hell when he's doing this. Literally, he is in hell while he's doing this. I don't know. I mean, then it's kind of like, well, are all of us in hell basically like, you know, pushing rocks up and everything like that. I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to put it in like actual terms, like actually like terms that make sense though. But are all of us here, we're all sitting here, we're all looking for meaning and that is why we're in this class. So are we actually just all a bunch of people in hell pushing up rocks? <laughs> and just addicted to this idea that someday there's going to be something that's going to get us up to this top and it's going to, the friggin' rock is going to stay there. I don't know. I don't know if anyone wants to answer this question. So, <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I will throw that out to the group. Uh, so, thank you, Aglaia, for uh, that's really powerful. And I and yeah, this this addiction to this idea that there will be a utopia, utopian society, there will be a messianic era, 
there will be a stage when all has been fixed or achieved. Um, you know, what do we do with that, uh, with that dream? Um, and coming off MLK Day, where he, you know, most certainly was, you know, a visionary of what what something might look like himself. I mean, when people call him a prophet, I think that's partially what they're talking about, is that he could envision something where where a world is fixed. Now, one building off of Glea, one, one, one name I want to put out there. Um, have any of y'all read Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens? Um, okay, so... Uh, this is probably the best-selling book in all of history uh, that attempts to do a history of the world. Let, let me tell you about Yuval Noah Harari, if that name is not familiar, because he just blew up in the last five years. Um, he happens to be Israeli. He happens to be gay. He happens to be vegan. He happens to be secular. Um, those things are not crucial to how he writes, but but they are factors. Um, but he he largely, oh, and he happens to be a climate um, I wouldn't call him activist, but heavily concerned about that and very involved in our in AI, the AI conversation and, and the future. But he partially um, he he largely rejects Judaism, he says, um, and uh, embraces kind of a Buddhist approach. And in and, and part of how he does that, he thinks that based on climate change, our time left on this planet is incredibly short. Um, and there is no utopia to come and, and life is meaningless and we're headed nowhere. And there is no God and all of that. Um, he's not anti-religion, though. And, but part of what he says is that why he, why he embraces and, and kind of a little bit oversimplistic, but just to get the point across, why he embraces kind of a Buddhist approach over a Jewish approach. He argues that Judaism is about meaning. Judaism is about making meaning of life, um, creating order out of chaos. And um, Buddhism is about rejecting meaning and is about uh, addressing suffering and he thinks the best response to the absurdity of life is not making meaning out of the absurdity but of addressing the problem of suffering and i share that just because it's an interesting take um some of us might think we can make meaning out of life either collectively or individually and some of us might think that that project's broken but what we can do is address our own suffering in response to the absurdity now, he may go further and say the suffering of other people as well, or he certainly thinks about that about animals, um, but I think is about people as well. But but at least my own suffering on kind of a psychic level. Um, so I throw that out there just for food for thought alongside Aglaia's provocative points here um, around life, meaning of life, meaning of dying, and open up the conversation forever else somebody else wants to go. Can I just throw this out there? Yes, please. Like, Great. One of the things that, okay, like, you know, um, everyone pretty much here knows that my father is no longer with us and everything, though, but he was an atheist. And one of the things that, you know, like he threw a lot of atheism at me while I was growing up and everything. So I heard it, you know, everything. Um, I never really could be an atheist. So I found that I never could be actually convinced myself of atheism because I just kind of found that I had trouble believing that this was actually the best we were going to get, no matter how cynical I got, no matter how, you know, basically shady I felt everything was. So I don't know if that helps this question or whatever, though, but really, honestly, do we want this to be the best? But yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, another way that that question has been asked, um, I, although I, 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 I think it gets close to what you're saying is, can we really 
imagine the world is so unjust that Hitler and a child that Hitler killed have the ultimate same fate. Um, and we might say, yes, the world is so unjust that Hitler and a child brutally murdered in the Holocaust have the exact same fate. Or I say, I, I actually can't live with that reality that there is no ultimate justice beyond this world. And so I think that's not the same thing you're saying, but I think it's similar to say like, like, uh, Aglaia, do you agree that's similar? Or do you want to say, do you want to express a difference? It's similar, yeah. Um, but also just in general though, like um, generally, well, I mean, if you look at things that humans have accomplished, we've accomplished a lot of things though, but I don't know. I just think that for me, part of the problem was is it's not just like, you know, a baby and don't get me wrong. It's a baby and Hitler having the same fate that does like have a lot to do with it though. But I'm also looking at just everything that humans do. Is this really the yeah. best right. that there is? Mm -hmm. And right. I kind of, I mean, maybe it's an addiction that I have, you know, like this idea that no, we're not the best that it's going to get, but I mean, I hope that we're not the best, you know, like I, at least that there's something else. Now, does that mean that someone's going to strike down, you know, someone is going to strike down the tower the next time we actually build our tower? Personally, I kind of hope so, because, well, how good is our tower? You know, strike down the tower. OK, now you move on, you graduate to the next point. That's just me. But yeah. Yeah. Although just just to make just thank you, just to make the case for a secular evolutionary perspective um, beyond beyond God. One might say, you know, and bracketing all catastrophes, climate change, war, pandemics, all the things that might destroy us all. Um, the notion that evolution is still in play for a, a long time to come and a more enlightened form of being may emerge than the relatively selfish human beings that we experience in our world today. Um, you know, that, that that might be another perspective on, on, on a better world to come, that that there, way, there may be a form of human that can emerge. Uh, that is capable of living more consistently with empathy than self than than selfishness than we currently experience the world to be. Um, but yes, anyways, very powerful, very very powerful to share. All right, so um, uh, who else? Okay, Eddie, you hop in here, Eddie. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, I'm thinking about the term absurd, and I'm thinking about it in terms of social justice. And I feel like oftentimes that word is used when approached by a certain language. So. Um, to give you an example of like when people say like, oh, that's racist and uh, people respond like, that's absurd. I'm not I'm not a racist. Like I'm I'm just pushing for this um, type of issue or whatever. Um, and I think that when we talk about um, justice and battling the, the absurdity of things, there needs to be language that does not automatically label people as things. Um, I think that in my professional self, I, I I guess I was more into the absurd of thinking that when I was a young activist, that it was everything was absurd, that the absurdity that billionaires could exist made me angry, that the absurdity that the border wall existed made me completely angry and thinking that no matter what I could do, everybody who pushed for that camp was existentially bad. But that pushed the agenda that there would be no dialogue with people. It would automatically shut down the conversation. And um, I I was listening earlier to Gary's comment of, you know, when we label somebody a racist or or look at that, it, it takes away the, the the ability for that person to have growth in what they what they see or may actually believe, uh, and it shuts down conversation. 
So how do we move past that uh, in, in a way that allows for collective dialogue that improves and moves away from absurdity and um, pushes, I think absurdity pushes existential dread that um, does not leave options for nuance. Thank you. Okay, Eddie, so let me make sure I heard you correctly. What I hear you saying is that we should have more tolerance for what is in the realm of reasonable because just labeling something absurd and unreasonable breaks down any ability to heal it, to talk about it, to engage with each other. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, so thank you for that. And I think there's almost something lazy about this kind of existentialist camp, which feels like very intense, but of just being, of just, you know, labeling absurdity in a way that, again, I'm not saying this about Camus, but, um, or of, of, of the great existentialist philosophers in general, but one who merely kind of sitting back um, can just label the absurdity of, the, of existence, and then we don't really have to do very much about it at all, right? Because it's just absurd. It always has been. It always will be. Nothing's fixable or, or repairable. Um, no one's even worth really engaging with around this. So yeah, Eddie, thank you for that, and I and I and and I hope others will engage with what Eddie's sharing here. I think that's very generative in terms of the society we're living in today. So I'm really appreciating what Eddie said, and I think that's that what I'm hearing that matters to me is that anytime we label anyone, we've done ourselves a deep injustice. Uh, there goes back to justice. Um, and that we can't grow as human beings without, I've said it before, but without tension. So while what I loved about is talking about Sisyphus, and I've always liked Sisyphus a lot, <laughs> um, is that while we are on our journey, we are always pushing boulders of one sort or another. And there's something in that tension, whether we're rolled back over by that boulder or we actually make some progress, it's within that tension that we have the opportunity to discover meaning for ourselves. And the movement then is in that discovery. It's not in the achievement of our goal, whatever that is. Mm. And I'm complete. Mm. Thank you, Sarah. If we can't solve the, pro the problems of uh, just in the realm of meaning making, we might find some um, comfort in knowing that everyone else to some degree has has and will continue to grapple with the same things. Um, I imagine on some level, when we're in a dying process, many of us will feel some level of absurdity of it all. Maybe we'll be at total peace, um, hopefully. But if not, we might feel some absurdity of, geez, what did I strive for? And this was all so short. And what did I spend my time and money on? And some levels of, I don't even want to call it doubt, as much of some sense of um, what was all this and it all went so fast and did I, you know, what did I do with it? And um, might find some peace in under knowing that that's kind of collective to human experience, some level of smallness amidst the, amidst uh, how massive everything and some, some sense of um, humility within all of that and um, confusion, but knowing that that's been a part of our shared human experience. So um, not responding to Sarah's great comments, but just, yeah, Sarah, back to you. Well, I, 
I don't know if I'll recognize the absurdity. I mean, I recognize, like Eddie, I recognize the absurdity when I was 16 reading existentialism. But now, um, I, I think that with age, a lot of that has shifted for me. And I think what I will find absurd at death is other people's reactions to the fact that I'm dying, since that's the most normal thing in the world is for me mm -hmm. to have lived and now I'm dying. Mm -hmm. That That's the trajectory. And what I remember best at my father's bedside as he died was uh, him looking up, somebody was busy talking at him. And fortunately, he didn't have his earring aids operational <laughs> at that point. And he just looked at me and went, which basically says it all to me. It's like, <laughs> um, and, and I think for me, that's that's how I'll be at death. It's like, it was, who knows what's next. Okay, thank you. Gary Friedlander, you get the last comment here. Okay. Well, you, I, I, just, I really just wanted to... Uh to address uh, Glay and, and uh, Sarah. And, uh, you know, uh, I used to tell my patients when they were dying or they're, they're living for a better life, you know, I've never known anybody ever to come back and tell me it's better someplace else. So, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of like Sarah pushing that rock up, up the mountain. And I think that uh, when I'm on my deathbed, I hopefully can think that I did the best that I could to make it better for the next generation uh and 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 leave it at that i had a very close friend who's a rabbi and he always would say you know of all the people that he went to uh uh make house calls on their deathbed not one ever said i wish i had worked another day so uh so you know that was kind of kind of my response and that's kind of how i've adapted you know my personal life uh, uh doing the best that i can on any one given day to make it a better place Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all. And whether we are in the camp of primarily seeing beauty and order and reasonableness and very little absurdity, or whether we're in the camp of seeing absurdity everywhere, or however we want to label the confusion or the frustration, um, I hope that we will respond to it by continuing to learn together, keeping to continue to come together through community and continue to spread acts of kindness that can um, transcend the confusion and give a sense of wholeness to each other so that we can live in some state of harmony, uh, knowing that love is possible, kindness is possible. Have a great day.